is KBC 790, Unite and Heal America. This is your host, Matt Matter. Today I've got on a guest, uh, Porter Fox. Uh, Porter uh, is a writer. The last book he wrote was The Last Winter, and uh, glad to have you on the program, Porter. Thanks for being Thanks on the for, show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Porter, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to the environmental movement and what your journey was to get here? Um, I was really just a skier at first, and as uh, a skier after college, I went out to Jackson Hole to be a ski bum and skied all through the Tetons and Sierras and Cascades, and um, was pretty obsessed with the sport, and I was simultaneously a uh, cub reporter at the Jackson Hole News, kind of learning journalism and learning how to write, so they kind of just married one another, and I ended up uh, getting a job at Powder Magazine about five years later and worked there for almost 20 years. Um, and my job there was to really go around the world and document winter culture, mountain culture, um, a lot of backcountry ski mountaineering and um, kind of expedition style stuff. So I was on glaciers pretty frequently and um, I guess it was in the late 90s when uh, myself and a few others started noticing these glaciers retreating, uh, thinning out, climbing routes that used to be there were gone, ski routes um, uh, that used to go through the Alps and the Andes and even the Himalayas were melting out from um, the bottom up. And I looked into it a bit and started writing about it for powder um, and then ultimately started writing about it uh, in the book form and for larger publications like the New York Times and such. So that's that's the abbreviated life story there. Well, um, sounds like a fascinating journey. One of my uncles was a, uh, a life, well, he lived out in Colorado for a long time and was a writer and was uh, big into nature. And, and so I think uh, that was kind of a similar path as to what you're describing and uh, certainly was incredibly disheartened by the the course that we've been taking in terms of the environment and what uh, what have you been doing in terms of environmental activism uh, since um, you you started to see the effects of climate change um, I mean, to be honest, I, I try to stay away from activism. I, I try to keep on my reporter hat and just act as the conduit between scientists, um, ski patrollers, ranchers, farmers, people that are noticing uh, the disappearing snowpack and disappearing water resources along with that, um, and accelerated climate change that comes with that, the, the increase in wildfires that comes with losing snow. Um, and just, I'm just trying to be a conduit between them and my readers. Um, it gets a little tricky when, you know, you dip into activism at the same time because it can affect your, your reporting and whatnot. Now that said, I have a long relationship with a group called Protect Our Winters. Um, it was based in California for a long time. Um, Powder Magazine, of course, is based in San Juan Capistrano. Um, in California, and I lived in San Clemente when I was um, working for them the first three years. Um, but at any rate, um, 
I really try to take um, what scientists, researchers, uh, people living in the snow are saying and distill it into story form, something that's a little easier to digest, a little more interesting than a peer-reviewed academic paper, um, and uh, really try to tell the story of our planet and what's happening to it right now through real people who are living real lives. And in this particular book, people that are very passionate about winter have lived um, in the snow, in the mountains, um, ski, you know, mammoth and squaw and big bear and, and all the other great spots across, you know, around the world that um, are, are kind of slowly noticing winter shrinking at, at both ends. So um, what is the arc of uh, your last winter novel? Um, well, it's not a novel. If it was a novel, it would be made up. <laughs> so this is, this is real life nonfiction, unfortunately. Um, but the, the arc starts in the Cascades, and it actually starts with a wildfire, which I know folks in California are unfortunately very familiar with. Um, it starts with the Carlton Complex fire, which at the time was the largest fire in the history of Washington State. And um, the connection over the course of the first section of the book slowly gets drawn uh, between these firefighters ranchers, skiers, um, folks living in the Methow Valley in Washington. Um, it, it slowly makes that connection between them and this group of scientists that have been drawing a connection between wildfire and spring snowpack. So one of the, um, the whole book really focuses on the planetary ramifications of disappearing snow and ice, of which there are many and we'll touch on all of them but this first one uh, was surprising to me because i hadn't heard about it um, but one of the primary uh, reasons for the recent spike in wildfires in the u.s west is a lack of snow um, snow is a natural water storage system um, for the whole u.s something like I think more than 70% of the precipitation in the U.S. West falls as snow, not as rain. Um, and it is stored in these very deep snowpacks up in the mountains, but thinner as you get down to the valley. And as April, May, June, July come along, um, that snow starts to melt and it doesn't rush all at once. It's this slow distribution of water through the forests through the streams, through the rivers, down through um, the valleys and uh, to farmland, to water districts um, all across the West. And so it really is this giant snow is this, uh, they call it a frozen water tower. And if you look around the world, there's about 78 frozen water towers on the planet that provide the primary source of fresh water to more than 2 billion people. Um, as those as that snowpack thins and and eventually will disappear in most places in most parts of the world there is no plan to replace it certainly not completely um, so that's one of the crises that that i write about um, and is something that's uh, incredibly important in california arizona nevada um, 
you know, especially uh, combine that with the wildfire, you know, combine that with the wildfires, the four and a half million acres that was, uh, you know, that was torched last year. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty shocking. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a long answer to your question. Well, in terms of, uh, when are we likely to see these uh, frozen water towers, these snow packs disappear, just bring it home to California? What's the, the time estimate given the current trajectory of um, global warming? Um, I mean, you can just look at Lake Tahoe. It's a pretty popular winter destination there. Um, and since 19, just since 1970, I mean, you know, the planet's been warming since the early 1800s and the industrial revolution and this massive, um, release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere by, by humans. But if you look at just since 1970 at Lake Tahoe, the snow line has moved uphill, uh, almost 1500 feet. So that's vertical feet. Um, so you can see how Lake Tahoe is pretty high, you know, to start with, um, you know, how tall those mountains are. Eventually we're, we're going to run out of room there, uh, and the snow line is going to go right up to the top of the mountains. Um, so, you know, some other popular spots like Park City is estimated to have zero snowpack by the end of the century, possibly by 2080. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, just regions across the country, um 2100 is really the end of the century is this kind of bookmark because it's probably easy to remember um but by 2100 you're looking at all regions in the u.s losing 20 to 100 percent of their snowpack 20 percent at least 100 percent uh for many many places across the u.s west um so that's you know that's kind of uh, a scary number and a scary timeline um probably the most surprising thing to me is that it is possible if we were to make a uh as every month goes by as every year goes by the um kind of uh, amount of uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction that we need to take on gets greater and greater and greater um, that timeline the timeline of the planet and melting is on a very solid track right now and climate change has some momentum so there's a couple of decades of, of you know radical warming that we probably can't stop um, but with a sudden drawdown i'm pretty surprised at how much snow we can keep in the mountains um you know not not as much as we have today certainly um, but definitely not uh, losing all snowpack across the country, except for the highest peaks of the Rockies and, and well, Porter, um, you know, in, uh, interior let, ranges. Let me just jump in there for a second. And uh, you're listening to KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host of Unite and Heal America. My guest, uh, Porter Fox, uh, writer of The Last Winter. Uh, we'll be back in just one minute to talk with Porter a bit more about... Uh, the uh, environment here out in California. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host, and uh, we've got Porter Fox on the show today, and Porter's talking with us about his recent book, and uh, in particular about uh, 
the greenhouse gas reduction that would probably be necessary to to have us sustain the snowpack across the mountains in the U.S., in particular in California. Um, I, I read something recently about the usage of coal actually increasing in the last year or two. And um, so that's not a particularly uh, good trend line. Um, I don't know if uh, you're following that too, or you know what your thoughts are and how we're going to kind of turn this ship around to uh, to make the kind of impacts that would actually save the uh, these frozen water towers across the, the U.S. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, a lot of that coal still comes from the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, where I. Uh, near Jackson Hole, where I skied all those years, is kind of an ironic situation. Um, but it's there. There are uh, uh, many countries that are trying to they're trying to draw down, and yet they're so not they're so unprepared um, for greenhouse gas emission reduction that. Uh, I, I feel you know this is just kind of supposition, but I feel like they're using coal as sort of this bridge to get to renewable. Um, in other words, the long-term goals uh, are hopefully going to meet the uh, Paris Agreement standards that they, they agreed to, but they're using coal in the short term. Um, even places like Germany, who's very much on the cutting edge of, of um, climate change um, mitigation uh, and adaptation. So, it can be a bit deceiving, but it is definitely discouraging to see China building a you know coal-fired power plant every six months or every six weeks or whatever it is. Um, it was equally discouraging to see the you know not a whole lot happen at COP26 in Glasgow recently. Um, even more discouraging is is looking at politicians across the world who continue to claim that this is not happening. Um, and I don't take any political bent in my uh, reporting or, or in the book, um, but certain things are real and certain things are not real. And when you see winter shrinking by two, four, six weeks in the fall and in the spring, um, you see a very um, obvious um, uh, reduction in snowpack across the country and especially up in the mountains, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to deny that. So it's, you know, there are some discouraging things happening. There's some unbelievable innovation happening. There is uh, solar going in, in India on a scale that nobody ever could have predicted. There's solar happening in Africa on a scale that nobody could have predicted. And a lot of people um, point to uh, even the buildup to, you know, during World War II, in America, where, where folks said there's no way you can build this many planes, there's no way you could build this many ships, and there's no way that you could take on this um, awful, um, you know, attack on Western Europe. And not only um, did the government turn out that many B-52s and um, guns and ammo, but they doubled it. Um, so the impossible can happen when your back is to the wall, especially in America, which is just so, um, you know, defined by innovation and, and by 
um, courage and, and people like really not backing down from an existential threat like this. So I have this, this glimmer of hope in the back of my mind that when the threat is real enough, um, then America will really kick into gear and truly lead um, this fight because it's, it's not so much about our lives as it is about our kids' lives because that is the generation that will really see the crunch and, and not just the, the warmer temperatures, but the resulting economic instability, political instability, um, societal instability um, that, that could be kind of scary, um, could be very scary. And so for my own daughter, that's, that's kind of my goal is to kind of try to get people to, to stand up and, and kick into gear. Well, absolutely. That's um, uh, a worthwhile goal. And it's something that kind of over the last few years, I've landed on as well, that uh, the climate issues are the most important issues facing the planet. And, and we all need to kind of focus our attention on this in order to, to meet this challenge. And, and I appreciate your optim optimism about uh, the American spirit and what we can accomplish. And I, I do see a lot of hopeful signs. Uh, there are certainly lots of signs that aren't quite as hopeful. Uh, kind of a question that I like to ask uh, the people who come on the show is like, what are the top five things that you see that we could do uh, both in the U.S. and around the world that would best address climate change and uh, make the most impact? Um, gosh, I would say that, you know, the, 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 the biggest thing is always to vote. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, um, but at this late date, recycling your cans and buying an electric vehicle is not going to do it. We all should do that. We should absolutely all be doing that. Um, but at this late date, it really takes national policy change. It really takes closing coal-fired power plants and creating jobs with renewable energy. That is the switch that needs to happen. If this was 50 years ago, maybe we could have done it on an individual basis, but we have kick the can down the road so far that there has to be sudden drastic nationwide change worldwide change and so voting still is the best thing you can do um you know joining and, and helping advocacy groups that are just really trying to educate people educate politicians and administrators um groups like protect our winters that i mentioned um just buying a 20 dollars membership and reading their webpage and, and newsletters and whatnot just to keep abreast of the situation uh, is super helpful. Um, maybe even just educating yourself is, is the most helpful and, and not educating yourself on social media. That's, that's a fool's errand, as I think we all know by now. Um, you don't have to read my book, but there are plenty of other books that are out there. Uh, very well um, researched. There's great information and um, you know, left-leaning publications like the New York Times and right-leaning publications like the Wall Street Journal. There's excellent fact-checked um, information in both. 
and and you can really decide for yourself if this is a crisis or not. Um, so educating yourself is probably number one. Um, and then, you know, as we go down the list, it does get back to individual commitments to um, get a more, you know, ride your bike instead of drive the car, take less flights if possible, um, get an electric vehicle if possible, take public transit if you can. Um, you know, if we can all do that, um, even going around and, and putting the, uh, you know, and making sure your home is insulated and, and is efficient. Um, you know, we just switched over to split units uh, from an oil furnace that was in this house we were renovating. And, and um, you know, that's a big change. You know, that's a lot of oil that we're not buying and burning. Um, so th those, that's, a, that's a quick list of things. Um, but again, number one is educating yourself, avoiding misinformation, um, avoiding marketing material from fossil fuel companies that have incredible resources and can get to you in so many different ways. Um, kind of have to sidestep that and, and really learn from, you know, really learn from valid sources what's happening. Um, and I guess maybe the last thing that, that, that Protect Our Winners suggests is, is if you have a, an opinion, if you have, if you want to make some change on a bigger scale, then find your biggest lever. And by that, um, you find somebody that owns a business, find somebody who is a politician, find someone that can contact and reach out to more people than you can, have an earnest discussion with them and, and just see if you can push that lever a little bit and, um, and get some more folks on board. Those are all excellent ideas. I really like the, the last one a lot to find yourself the biggest lever and, and push on that. And I think that's a, an excellent mindset to, to have is that we all know people that might be able to move the fulcrum a little bit more and uh, we should reach out to them. We should cooperate with them. Is that what defines us really as a species is our ability to cooperate and read a book uh, about super cooperators. And that's really what uh, has launched the development of our species, but also has probably led to this climate change problem is that uh, we've developed capacity to pollute at uh, such a high rate that that's endangered us. But uh, I, we can back our way out of it by cooperating to reduce that pollution. So uh, you're listening Absolutely. to KBC 790. This is Matt Matter and your host, Night and Heal America. We'll be back in just uh, one minute with uh, Porter Fox to talk with him about his most recent book, The Last Winter. You're listening to KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host of Unite Heal America. We've got Porter Fox on the show today. And uh, Porter, uh, you've done a lot of work in California. What do you see as ha what's happening in California that's uh, the problems with uh, climate change and what can we do kind of to deal with it? Um, you know, it's California is a tricky one. They're absolutely buried with snow right now. And uh, it's, it's feast or famine a lot of times. And that's actually what climatologists predicted 10, 20 years ago is that in winter, there will be fewer snowstorms in the future. There will be a rising snow line. So the 
rainfall will kind of move up the mountain. Um, but there will be more severe blizzards. So when there is a storm, when there is a cycle, it will be extremely heavy snowfall. Um, and when there's not, there will be a lot of high pressure, a lot of winter rain. Um, and a longer time between storms. So that's generally the, the future of winter um, across the country, and especially in, in California. Um, you know, the Sierra Nevada, you're looking at um, potentially on, under the higher emission scenario, which we're basically on right now. Hopefully that's going to change. Um, you know, you're looking at 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit of warming by the end of the century. That's a tremendous amount, six degrees Celsius pretty much a worst case scenario. Um, and, you know, looking at that potential, um, you're probably going to shorten the snow season um, by over two months at high elevations, lower elevations, it will be completely gone. No snow on the ground, uh, rain all winter long, brown peaks in the Sierra as, um, you know, as opposed to white. Um, it, it was shocking to me to read that for the first time. I skied mammoth a ton, you know, with powder based in San Juan Capistrano. We would ski a lot in Southern California and get up into the Sierras a fair amount. Um, what was even more shocking, uh, connecting to what I was talking about before, um, I did a piece for the New York Times on this, was um, politicians representing districts that are up in the mountains. Um, and and they're uh, them not standing up for snow, you know, not standing up for uh, conservation or um, just trying to, at the very least, find a way to get us through this climate crisis. Um, folks like Kevin McCarthy in the 23rd district, not one time uh, has voted for a pro-environment, uh, excuse me, a climate bill. Paul Cook in the 8th district, 3% of the time. And his entire career voted for um, pro-environment on a climate bill. Tom McClintock in the fourth district, Doug LaMalfa in the first district, under 5%. You know, these are folks that are representing people living at the foot of those water towers, right at the foot, farmers, ranchers, um, people living in towns where their water district is almost completely coming from glacial melt, uh, glacial or just snowpack melt. Um, it's completely shocking to me. It continues through Oregon and Washington, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, um, representatives like Liz Cheney, you know, who's completely pro-oil, pro-coal, and does not stand up for the farmers, for the folks, um, you know, even the Snake River that straddles, uh, it goes right between Idaho and Wyoming. And it's so vital to, to that agricultural business that um, she just doesn't stand up for it. That's, that really blows my mind. Um, you know, back to California, when you're getting record uh, wildfire year, actually record wildfire year, and nearly all of the largest wildfires in the U.S. West are starting in areas that used to be covered by spring snowpack. The snowpack isn't there anymore. The water isn't there anymore. The forest becomes a tinderbox because the snow isn't covering the ground. Um, a lot more plants, new growth pops up, really uses that diminishing water supply, like stretches it even further and provides more fuel for the fire. Um, it's pardon the pun, but it is a snowballing situation 
um, that seems to get um, get worse and worse. So those are those are you know some of the things that could happen in California in the West um, in the future. Again, hopefully we can kind of get the get the car back on the road and hit the brakes and um, find a way to uh, to create a little bit safer future for all of us. What what are ways or things that we could do in California, California specific, to kind of mitigate these uh, effects? I realize that we're talking about a worldwide problem, so some of it uh, we can't just do alone. But maybe there are some things that we can do. Um, I've I've heard of you know channeling some of the rainwater not down the concrete channelized things like the LA River to something that has a a, um, a natural uh, soil on, on the bottom so that it, it's actually sucking in some of the rainwater versus currently we're just having it all shoot out to the sea when it does rain and it's not recharging the groundwater and, and that's not a good cycle. Absolutely. Engineering like that can really help. They're, they're doing incredible things in Europe right now where they're replacing vanishing glaciers with giant alpine dams up in the mountain so instead of the glacier melting away and disappearing the natural storage the glacier provided is now man-made engineered storage with a dam up on a ten thousand foot peak in this valley holding all the water there um, it doesn't work quite the same because of evaporation and a lot of other issues um, but they're working hard to figure it out so dealing with those uh, concrete conduits is really important um you know probably the biggest thing that californians can do besides first of all look up your representatives and senators and just see how they voted make sure that they are voting in your best interest i would say that's probably the best thing but secondly use your lever to find out where your energy is coming from is it coming from wind solar is it coming from um hydro i know california is pretty good in that regard if it's not uh what a lot of uh, ski resorts and big corporations in the west have done has gotten they've gotten together and essentially bullied the, the electric companies to buy more renewable energy um the town that i live in i'm in, in uh, upstate new york um i just got a letter from the town that said we just struck a deal where we are purchasing 100% renewable energy. If anybody does not want to be a part of this deal, then you can sign this letter and send it back. Otherwise, um, this is gonna happen automatically. So the house you know, that I live in now is running completely off of uh, renewable energy that they're buying um, from solar and wind and, and uh, hydro. So it's um, the, moving the grid and moving the, the electric, that, that's just such a big, um, uh, greenhouse gas emitter right now would be huge. And secondly, um, you know, cars, airplanes, trucks, if we can get away from the, those internal combustion engines and, and more towards EVs, that would really help a lot. Yeah, certainly that is uh, hopefully the wave of the future. We, we're seeing a number of manufacturers getting more serious about uh, producing EVs, though we've got a long way to go. I think we're at 4% of all cars are EVs at this point in time. And we need to get up much higher than that uh, to really mitigate the uh, the effects of climate change. 
Uh, about the, the policies here in California, you've seen uh, some, some shifts in policy over the last few years in terms of uh, talking about going to uh, net zero sooner. Uh, do you think that's going to be enough based upon what the climate scientists are telling you? You know, I, I just follow what the IPCC says. That's the that's the United Nations um, panel on climate change, and you know, you're talking about hundreds, thousands of scientists sending their data, their studies, their research to this panel. It's it's really the one cohesive. Um, there's so many voices involved. I, I, I think it would be almost impossible for it to be slanted one way or another. And and so what their track is, what they suggest, is is really what I go to. It's it's also what COP26, you know, the um, uh, Council of the Parties, um, uh, when they get together and try to plan a path forward for for all nations um that's typically what they go to for guidelines so if we can do that i have faith that we can avoid the worst consequences of climate change we can avoid uh dramatic sea level uh rise that puts coastlines underwater we can avoid massive water shortages in the u.s west essentially turning everything west of colorado into a giant desert um, if we can avoid, um, you know, everything from, you know, that kind of natural disaster, wildfires and whatnot to, again, the economic impact of all of this and, and keep things close to how they are today, um, I would be absolutely thrilled. Um, but the requirements that they're asking to get on that track to 1.5 degrees warming and no more are pretty drastic. And companies are saying they're not going to do it. Uh, some nations are saying they're not going to do it. Um, to me, I'm kind of like, okay, so you're throwing in the towel? Because um, we, we know pretty well what's going to happen if we don't do this. Um, you know, I mean, some effects that will happen just from the melting snow and ice is, you know, you're looking at, up to 210 feet of sea level rise if Antarctica and Greenland were to melt. Just those two places, you know, inundating, moving the, the coastline, you know, back to I-5, you know, moving it back to I-95 in the, on the East Coast. Um, you're looking at um, these billions of tons of greenhouse gases that are frozen into the permafrost of the arctic it's stored there the greenhouse gases um like methane co2 are frozen there that thaws all of that naturally gets released into the atmosphere warming the planet many more times than humans ever did we're um, yeah those, I mean, we are talking about cataclysmic change and uh, that is something that you would think would wake up humanity now you're listening to kbc 790 and this is uh, Matt Mattern, your host of Unite and Heal America. And I guess Porter Fox will be back in just one minute to talk with Porter about uh, these very important issues. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Porter Fox on the show. Uh, Porter and I were just talking about the potential cataclysmic changes that can occur if 
we don't do anything about climate change, and we hope that wakes up people. I am heartened a bit by one of the things that Europe is doing recently, which is to say anybody who is importing products into Europe would have to meet their environmental standards lest they be subject to a tariff, which I think the U.S. should do as well, which would also protect U.S. manufacturers from countries that are producing goods where they don't meet environmental standards. Uh, so it would help our help uh, American workers as well as would help the environment by encouraging countries to meet uh, more stringent environmental standards in order to send products to the U.S. or send them to the EU. And I think it's a it's kind of a very elegant and beautiful solution to encouraging companies to do the right thing. I don't know if that's something you've looked into or uh, it's something that uh, you think would work, Porter. What do you think? Yeah, I've been a little more on the earth science side of this and a little less on the policy making side of it. But um, I, I have found that market-based solutions like that, like the carbon tax, that seem to be a very elegant solution to the problem. Um, the, the crazy thing is that in most industries, you know, those changes save the company money in the long run. Becoming right. more green, becoming uh, less of a fossil f uh, fuel user in the long run is more profitable. And so that's why you have seen, you know, a lot of these divestment campaigns um, telling colleges to take their money out of this, out of the fossil fuel industry, companies, you know, publicly traded companies take their money out of it because it's not responsible to the shareholder to continue to go down the fossil fuel hole. They're, they're losing money in the long run. It is more profitable, it's more equitable, and it's vastly safer to follow a, a more green future that is not dependent on fossil fuel. And doesn't, isn't that what people, like, what, what do they want? In the end, you know, you're, you're talking to a corporate person, you're talking to a politician that gets their money from, you know, corporate donations. Like, don't you, aren't, don't you want money? If you don't, if you don't care about the environment and you don't care about money, what's your motivation? You know, it, it's, it, it works on all fronts. It's a better world in every way. If we take this on now, use these market-based solutions, use national policy change, shut down the coal plants, create jobs to build renewable energy, and get off this medieval, dirty energy-producing process that really was outdated 150 years ago. Um, yeah. It's just yeah, modernization. We clearly have the technology to have cleaner energy. It's within our grasp. Uh, we've could have had electric cars back 120 years ago, but uh, somehow the uh, oil companies directed us down a different uh, path and we ended up with exactly. all gas cars instead. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we got to play it as it lies and, and deal with the situation as, ex as it exists. And we, we clearly can make these changes and preserve our economy. I mean, quite frankly, as you said, it, it could be, it would be good for our economy. You just look at California and the examples of uh, trying to reduce the smog here in Southern California, that 
was said hey, it can't be done we can't have cars running on unleaded gas and and catalytic converters and all the rest there was pushback at every stage by the oil companies and yet we did all those things and they said we can't have meet these fuel economy standards and yet we did so I, I just tend not to believe them when they say we can't we can't we can't Precisely. And the oil industry is the richest industry ever in the history of this planet and in human history. They have so much money. They get so many billions in subsidies from our tax money that they have power that we can't imagine. They have bought Congress. They bought the Senate. They bought the presidency many times. They bought, uh, excuse me, and they've bought uh, journalists, they've, they've bought, you know, newspapers, you know, they, and, and it's, you know, in their defense, they're just trying to, you know, turn a massive profit. That's what a lot of people try to do in this world. But now it's very much at the cost of lives, livelihoods, and potentially our, our collective future. Well, turning back to your book again, uh, what do you see as the the change in the in the uh, winter culture over the last uh, 20 30 years and where do you see it uh, headed over the next 20 or 30 years well one of the coolest things that i have seen is people really communing with nature in winter more and more the backcountry ski movement which was pretty small when i was coming up in jackson and we were hiking into the Tetons and skiing down these beautiful powder fields. Um, it's just booming right now. Everybody wants to get away from the resort, um, away from you know the base lodge and the lifts and whatever, and just use human power to hike up into the hills and ski down. Um, that is that's been a very cool thing to watch. In Europe, it's much more common. People are doing that all the time anyway. In the States, it's it's really taken off, especially since the pandemic and since um, a lot of the resorts now have limited um, a limit of you know how many people can be on the resort in a given day, and the lodges are closed and whatnot. So I see that as a great thing. People that choose to go outside and and be active in the winter are a really special breed um I've, I've been writing about them for more than 20 years now and i just find them to be like the friendliest most adventurous physically tough um folks around and um you know if anybody is going to kind of take up the torch and, and try to fight this fight for us i i think they're probably a, a great bunch to do it well that's uh it's good to hear. I love to hear that there are people out there that are really fighting for this. And I know there are millions of people who do care about this and probably billions of people. Uh, it's a, really a question of getting their hands uh, on the right levers to, to make the right moves. And, and uh, that's, that's challenging because I think in, in the U.S. we've kind of been on autopilot uh, for a long time thinking, well, the people in power will take care of it. We'll, we're just enjoying what we're doing or we're, we're busy working or busy with our families. Uh, we really can't be bothered with uh, this public policy stuff or learning about the science behind climate change. It's, 
it's complex. It's like you said, thousands of different papers for the IPCC. Uh, it just makes your head spin. So, you know, forget it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do we do to, and what do we do to engage those folks? It's again, it's about education, you know, get the politics out of it. I don't care what your politics are. Um, I, I, I mean, I care, but I, it doesn't affect me. Your glow, your, your worldview. I don't care. This is about math. It's literally just about math. Um, I just watched the new movie. Don't look up, which is terrific. And it is basically a metaphor for climate change. Um, it's an actual metaphor, not a fictional one. Many uh, climate change scientists always said if a meteorite was speeding towards Earth and was going to destroy it, um, would you just say, oh, I don't believe that's happening and turn your cheek? Or would you say, let's launch some nukes and let's try to divert this thing away from our planet? Um, and in that movie, that's exactly what happens. And led by corrupt politicians, they kind of convince the world that this is not happening, um, that there's, uh, I don't want to, <laughs> spoiler alert, that there's uh, valuable minerals to mine from the meteorite. Maybe we can, you know, control it and, and um, you know, make all that cash off of it. Um, that is uh, kind of the path we're on right now. Um, again, bankrolled by the fossil fuel industry. Um, but I would just say, just find, read the science. You know, there, there, there is no uh, bias for a, a scientist working on the Juno ice field or out on the Antarctic ice core drilling operation. They don't care. They're just doing their job. They send the data back. They're, you know, they'll write the papers, tell you what they found. Um, there's no bias there. Um, there's sure plenty of bias in the green movement, plenty of bias in the environmental movement, but not at the scientific level. Um, this is this is just a math problem, and what the math is saying is that we are on track to a very very dangerous amount of climate change in this century and the next, and that it is also very possible to get off that path and onto a safe one. So I and my family choose the safe path, and uh, certainly encourage everybody to look into that science, not on social media, never on social media, but in actual publications, in actual books, learn the real facts. Well, uh, Porter, it's been great having you on the show. You've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. Uh, Porter Fox, the author of The Last Winter, check it out. Uh, and uh, We'll be back next week. Thanks, folks.